Father, every one of us has been at the brink of hopelessness. And we know the breath of divine fresh air when a circumstance, a person, the sovereign guiding of the hand of God brings hope back into our life. The removal of guilt, the restoration of brokenness, the, the belief again in heaven, the assurance that you're good even in the use of evil. So we thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of singing and preaching hope every Sunday. And we thank you that, as Catherine said last week, there will come a day when we do not need hope any longer, for we shall see face to face who we have been hoping in. Until then, Lord, would you please gather some more people uh, from this gym and from this neighborhood and from this city and all across town, all the, across the state, across the Atlantic and Pacific, across islands and continents, that they may discover the hope of Jesus Christ. Even as we meet, we pray for the persecuted, those who are in chains and prisons because of their witness for the hope of Christ, and may they be inundated unexplainable supernatural hope. We want to suffer with them in spirit. We want to lift them up in prayer and singing and listening on their behalf. Lord, but may their hardship result in the spread of hope um, in villages and towns and cities where Christ is not known and loved. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As we have stated many times in this series... The Old Testament concludes with 12 uh, what we call minor prophets. They're major in importance, but minor in length. And we've been through 10 of them, and today we go to the 11th. So we've been through Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. And we count it a privilege that God would so love this church that he would have taken us through this utterly complex portion of the Bible. So we are now in the book of Zechariah, and just so you can hear how it starts, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. So from that introduction to that book, we know that he preached at the same time the guy we just finished studying, Haggai. And these guys are at the end of all the minor prophets because they are called post-exilic prophets. I have no desire to confuse you, certainly not to impress you, but sometimes learning a theological term will help you grasp. When we talk about post-exilic prophets, we're talking about preachers who served God's people post-after a 70-year exile of the Jews. So they had already been taken captive. They had been sent 900 miles away. They spent 70 years there. Now they're coming back. And after that return, after the exile, three men, and we've, all, we've already studied one, Haggai, but Zechariah preaches within weeks of the same time that Haggai preaches, and it's pretty important that you know that, that date. So God sent two men, 
Haggai and Zechariah to urge the people, now that you've returned to Jerusalem, they've been slacking. God had told them, rebuild the temple, that my glory may come to the city. And for 16 years, they sat on the project fearful, discouraged. And so Haggai and Zechariah are telling them, get that building finished. Now, even though they're preaching for the same ultimate purpose, they have vastly different strategies, vastly different approaches. Uh, Haggai, much easier to understand. Zechariah, really way over my head, but I'm going to just sort of stumble through the next few weeks into the study of Zechariah with you. If I had to say it generally, I would say Haggai, his ministry was, we need to get this building rebuilt. Zechariah said, while we're rebuilding the building, you need to get your heart rebuilt. So Haggai focused on structure. Zechariah focused on hope, holiness, uh, a much um, lengthier um, assignment. The reason I mention that, I don't want to say one, one application first right here. Haggai could not be Zechariah. He didn't come close to the profundity of his message. But nor did Zechariah need to apologize for being very, very complicated. They had two different missions. Both brought glory to God. I read a cool quote by Ann Voskamp this week. The more you let yourself compete and compare, the more you forget your own calling. So if God calls you to be Haggai, you be Haggai. God calls you to be Zechariah, you be Zechariah. And what is true with individuals is also true with churches. In just a few months, we're going to gather all of our stuff up, and our, our personhood. We're going to go across town and begin ministry in a new building. And with a prophet's zeal and a shepherd's love, I want to tell you that we, as a church, do not get to go across town town and tell God what we're going to do for him. We're going to go and find out what he wants to do. But we don't get to sit down around a table and say, we're going to go take this, we're going to go do this. God will tell us, as he told Haggai, you're to say this, Zechariah, you're to say that. No one gets to tell God how they're going to glorify him. Our responsibility is to walk with him. And then he will make his will known. But we don't compare ourselves to other churches. Don't compare ourselves to what other people are doing in the city. God has an assignment for us that none of us know at this point. We only know the first step is to, to move. The book of Zechariah is frustrating to a lot of people because he, he primarily speaks through visions. Divine pictures movies, they're not dreams. It's like, like, like the other, recently, I, I told the staff this, my wife has lots of dreams. I'm really glad they don't come true. <laughs> but they don't make any sense. They're not supposed to make any sense. One of the most recent dreams, she was in South America coming down a hill, and at the bottom of the hill was a bull, and it was angry at her. A hunter came along and threw a sheet over the bull's eyes. And Lisa walked right past it. <laughs> that is not a vision. So Zechariah had true visions. 
they are unbelievable. And that's why many people just skip the book because they're, they don't make any sense to our 21st century mindset. Vision one, four riders on multicolored horses, four animal horns and four metal workers, a man measuring Jerusalem with a string, a priest gets a new change of clothes, two olive trees pouring oil into a lamp, a flying scroll. This is so great. Lisa's always wanting to say, she said, what you going to say? She's in nursery. She said, what you going to say? So I was telling her about all the crazy visions and Zechariah. She said, and I was just reading it to her. And she said, a flying squirrel? No, 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 no. A flying scroll. No flying squirrels in Zechariah. A woman sitting in a basket and four chariots flying between two Mountain. So Zechariah is difficult because of the visions. Zechariah is difficult because it's not linear. It's like talking to somebody who starts a conversation. They get distracted. Later the conversation, they finish the point they started. Not linear. He's coming back and wrapping up a lot of conversations later. But despite the difficulty, oh, thank you for doing something to me very courageous. And that's just showing up and we're going to do this. We're going to do this book together. I mean, it is, oh, it is just so difficult, but here's why it's worth it. Because these are the five principles that come out of the study of the book. God is in control of history. Clearly see that in the book. Rebelling against God is the source of human misery. God's kingdom cannot be established by human effort. Israel will love Messiah. Christ, and be a witness to many nations. And finally, God will ultimately be victorious over all evil. The book of Zechariah is very interesting. Uh, many people call it the apocalypse of the Old Testament, the revelation of the Old Testament, because it is quoted. Only the book of Ezekiel is quoted more in Revelation among the prophets. A lot of quotes from Zechariah and in Revelation, uh, the New Testament writers thought that Zechariah was a gold mine of material. New Testament writers refer to Zechariah 71 times. And I think it's because of all the references to Jesus Christ in, in, in the book. And in the final week of Christ, it is Zechariah who tells us all the things about how Christ will be humbled or suffer, that he will come riding in on a donkey, uh, that he will be sold for 30 pieces of silver. All of that is in the book of Zechariah, that when Christ was hit, the disciples would scatter and run. All of that is in the book of Zechariah. The book means, the name of the book means, the Lord remembers a reference to the fact that every promise God has ever made to his people, he will remember to fulfill. Today as we speak and we're just sitting here, man, history is flying along at an immeasurable pace of all the things that God has remembered that he's going to do in order to bring about the completion of the kingdom of God on earth and into eternity. Every lost soul that's on the heart of God from the prior to the creation of the world, every lost soul will be found by God. He will remember them all, no matter where they are in the world. It's not like God has a day when he get, uh, where he's distracted or he loses zeal. 
God's is as, is as intense today as he was on day one of creation when he created 100 billion galaxies, each containing 100 million stars. Just as intense. He's just as, as intense today as when he made that, that epic promise to Abraham that you'll be a blessing to the world. God is just as intense today when he commanded the sun to stand still in the sky so Joshua could, could, fight, could keep fighting. Joshua, uh, God is just as intense today when he rescued Daniel out of the lion's den or raised his son from Jerusalem's tomb. He's just as intentional and intense as he ever has. God, every second of the day, the Lord remembers every detail that needs to be completed for his purposes to be accomplished in our lives. And hallelujah, when we forget God, when we forget God, he never forgets us. The Lord remembers. Zechariah. But it is important that we do remember some things. Zechariah starts off with a very strong, before the visions, he starts off with a a firm warning about remembering. Not on God's part, on our part. Flick. Zechariah 1, 2. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. So the prophets speaking to the people. They're back in Jerusalem. Been in exile, now come back. Cities in shambles. Do not be like your ancestors. Where are your ancestors now? Did not my words overthrow your ancestors. So prior to the exile, the people of Judah and before that Israel thought we can rebel against God and nothing will happen. Zechariah says, where are those people now? Dead. But my word is doing fine. Rebels die, the word lives. Back to what we said in the opening five points rebellion against God is the source of human misery. All people are like grass, like the flowers of the field, 1 Peter 1. The grass withers and the flowers fall. People fall. People fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And I, I hope you have learned that. God's word will stand forever while all those who don't believe in his word will fall. We've had... We had hard death in the city this weekend. A 23-year-old young man worked on my house last year. We loved him. We shared Christ with him. By God's grace, we helped him with dental care with really, the credit goes to a nice dentist in this town. We helped him try to get on his feet. I begged him to come here. I begged him to follow Christ. I begged him to get away from people. 
that he was running with. And while he was running with them this weekend, they crashed their car and he died. The word of God stands and it ends up that people die. But no one really ever breaks a commandment. You simply break yourself trying to break a commandment. Rebellion against God is the source of human misery. So, having begun a very challenging and difficult, uh, sobering, now we're ready to start the eight visions. The book of Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets, and the first six chapters are visions. That's all they are. Eight visions in six chapters. And they, these visions were delivered about six to eight weeks after Haggai finished preaching. In other words, Zechariah could sort of see that the people had not quite grasped what Haggai was saying. More needed to be said. Haggai's done preaching, and now Zechariah begins to preach. And he starts with eight visions. Here's vision one. During the night, I had a vision. There before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. So not difficult to understand. You got a, a, tree, a grove of trees. You got a man on a red horse. You got some other horses, different color horses, behind him. Now, you're going to see this same scenario in the book of Revelation. You probably have seen the title of Billy Graham's book, The, the Four Horses of the Apocalypse. Sort of. It will parallel this with some differences, but I want to tell you whether you're reading Zechariah, Revelation of the Old Testament, or you're reading the big dog itself, Revelation of the New Testament, don't ruin any of the books by trying to figure out every single detail of apocalyptic literature. There are principles God wants you to, so if you were to compare these horses, some of them are going to be different colors. And you go, ha, ah, ah, it's, it's, I found an error in the Bible. I don't think God's all that caught up in colors of his horses. There's principles about the horses that you don't need to miss. So look for the principles and get over the different colors of the ponies. So Zechariah, or the angel, would ask the same thing we would. I ask, what are these, my Lord, these four horses? And he gets an answer. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go out through all of the earth. So then this here is a, another reminder of the sovereignty of God. He sends out four horses and they run so fast, they're so powerful, they're so large, they can survey and bring back a report of what's going on throughout all of the earth. Wow, oh, that's cool. So they come back and they give report. They reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and at peace. And when you first see that, you're just, you're, you're just now getting into Zechariah. Go, oh, good. There was a good report. It's not a good report. Because the, the people that are at peace are world powers, namely Persia that defeated Babylon, that defeated Assyria. So you've got 
all the, all the secular, godless world powers, after they do their conquering, they're at peace while the people of God in Jerusalem are back living in a city of shambles. And the reason why we know that this is sort of the way it goes is they asked us, and the angel of the Lord said, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem? Everybody else getting mercy. See, that's, that's how you know what the, those nations are getting mercy. They're at peace. We're not at peace. We have bricks scattered everywhere. We've got the majority of Jewish people not even living back in the city. We don't even know where they're scattered. And we're trying to rebuild Solomon's temple, but right now it looks like a shack. Where's the peace? How long, O Lord, will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with? Again, the reference to how long they had been gone and now returned, the whole period was 70 years. So they're depressed. And they're depressed because there's a difference between expectation and reality. (laughs) Have you ever been there? This is what I thought the job was going to be. This is what I thought the marriage was going to be. This was what it is. So depression occurs when there's a difference between expectation and and reality. So what's God going to do with this big void? He does what he does best. He comforts us. Zechariah 1.13, so the Lord spoke kind and comforting word to the angel who talked with me. Now, this is one of my faves in the book right here. This is your God. When life is just completely messed up and your heart is broken and you ask God why, he responds with kind and comforting words. If you read the book of Zechariah, all 14 chapters, you will see 50 different instances where God said something kind to the people of of God. He's always speaking kindness to them when they're hurting and they're broken, such as one of my favorites, Zechariah 2, verse 8, whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. I mean, boy, I mean, is there... Just, they're not a, is there no dad here that could use I could have written that about my daughter. Man, you touch my daughter? <laughs> you, just could, you could hear the love of God. And, and literally in Hebrew, it's you, whoever touches you touches my pupil. The most sensitive part of your body. And I think all of us in here would say, you know, whatever sense you want the most, I think it would be eyesight. So it's the most valuable thing. I just, you touch Israel, you touch my people, you're touching the most important thing to me. So you just love these comforting words. Now back to Zechariah 1 verse 14. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. So these are the comforting words. He promised to give. In other words, I love my people so much, it breaks my heart, and it just, I'm throwing all of my energy into not letting them miss the purpose for which I have designed them. That's sort of what the word jealous means. It's not, not jealous like 
you know, you got more than I do. It's like, I don't want, I don't want anybody to take away their potential. I want them to know what they were created for. Then more comforting words. And I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. That's what we said a minute ago. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. This is very interesting. God said, yes, I did raise up through the centuries other nations to come discipline my people because they were living in sin, but every one of those nations went too far and began to turn discipline into terrorism of my people. And they began to... They went way too far because they loved evil and they inflicted evil, grotesque evil on my people. So God is not pleased with the, what the invading armies did to Israel, which leads to vision number two. Then I looked up. Here's vision two. It's related to that one. And there were before me four horns. And I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answers, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. A horn in Old Testament times represented like the horns of a bull, and people would say the power of that animal is in its horns. So horns have always been traditionally regarded as power. So the nations that terrorized Israel and Judah are compared to very powerful entities here they're called horns verse 20 then the lord showed me four craftsmen um not the kind of guys that worked at sears but these would be like metal workers these would be like blacksmiths these would be like guys that have huge forearms and spend their days whacking on metal shaping swords with metal that's been in the fire Strong, powerful men, four metal workers, blacksmith. And I asked, what are these coming to do? And he answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head. But the craftsmen, the blacksmith, have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people." This is the promise of justice, worldwide justice that everyone in this room longs for. History is not over. God has not deeded out justice yet to evildoers, but he will and it will be perfect. For 21 centuries, the world has persecuted the church. In fact, In the 20th century alone, more believers died for the cause of Christ than all 19th centuries combined before. And God will not forget. Zechariah, God remembers, God will not forget one sacrifice, one pain that's been made for the cause of Christ. Justice is coming against those who terrorize the church. Vision three, more comforting words. Then I looked up and there before me was a man with a measuring line. This is vision three. We're making good progress. We won't do all eight, so don't get scared. I asked, where are you going? He answered me, and he answered me. 
So I'm, the guy's got the line. Where are you going? To measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and long it is. So this guy's a surveyor. He's an appraiser. And he's just got a measuring string. He's going to find out. He's like Bentley. He's going to find out how big Jerusalem is. And then somebody comes in, comes and says, don't do it. You don't have enough string. While the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, run, tell that young man, go tell Brian. <laughs> Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. A very handy verse for me when people come to me and say, my dog just died, will I ever see it again? Yep. <laughs> Probably reading a little bit into it, but it saved me a lot of crying in my office. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> she always asks me, she said, you left your notes, didn't you? Yep, I did. So I left my notes. <laughs> oh, so the city, stop. So the city is going to be so wonderfully large, it can't be measured. And that's why the appraiser has said, put down your string, because this city is so big that there is not even going to be any walls around the future Jerusalem. Because once you built one set of walls, you'd have to move them the next day because the city is growing so quickly during this future time of Jerusalem's blessing. And then you might ask this question. Well, if Jerusalem doesn't have walls and there's still enemies around, how in the world is the city going to survive? Good question. God was ready for it. Zechariah 2.5, and I myself will be a wall of fire around the city, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within it. Living with God in his city is the destination that all of you are dreaming about today. It's what you want. It's what I want. It's where we're headed. It's what we long for because we know that in the city of God, that city we will experience complete and ultimate unending satisfaction for our soul. And nowhere in all of Scripture is the city of God more beautifully described than here in Zechariah 2.5. A city and God himself, a wall of fire around it to be our protection. Wow. And I told you there's some similarities, a lot of similarities between Zechariah and Revelation. And that's why we go to the end and we say, well, and there's, and God's glory is going to be in the city. And John, the writer of Revelation, picks up on this in Zechariah as well. And I just like the way he says it. You'll enjoy it. Revelation 21, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine for the glory of God gives it its light. So enough similarities between Revelation 21 and, and Zechariah 2 that we, we see them tracking in the same, same direction. And some of you have might just ask, you might have asked this question. I certainly did when I when I saw that thing about there will be a wall of fire, and and but yet I still quoted that that statistic that more people were killed in the 20th century for Jesus Christ than all 19 centuries before. You say, well, where was the wall of fire? It's a great question. 
Um, God does let his people die, and he does let his people suffer. But I just want you to know that if God's wall of fire was not presently around the church for these 21 centuries, we would have long ago been wiped off the face of the earth. There is a much greater wall of fire around this building right now than you think for us to have made it 15 years. When you think about all the sins of God's people, all their errors, all their crazy wrong strategies, all the embarrassing things that have been taught, all the rebellious journeys they've taken, the continual existence of the church proves like nothing else that God is alive in this world. There's no reason the church should be alive except that it is surrounded by the fire of God. If you want a demonstration of the God is at work in this universe, look at the continuation of the Christian church. Now back to Zechariah. What I want to do now is answer why is the population growing so much in Jerusalem at this time, at this future time. Zechariah 2.11, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations, how about that, Ronnie? And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst. A similar verse, Zechariah 8. I love, Zechariah 8, I love how, how the evangelism happens through Israel. This says it will happen. This is sort of a, a picture of it. Zechariah 8, 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations, from Libya, from Jordan, from, from Honduras, ten that you named, ten men from the nations of every tongue, from Zimbabwe, from Sudan, from China, from Hong Kong, from Mongolia. Ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the, of the robe of a Jew, a Christ-believing Jew, and say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Oh, that is good. This is just a reminder of how the Jewish people will play in the latter days evangelism of the world. Don't know exactly how they will. We just know they will. That they will have believed by that time. Listen, let me, let me just, let me, let me, let me say something. Whenever you teach a book like Zechariah, and there's so many prophecies related to ethnic Israel, uh, you're going to always be asked the question, I was last week, I'll be asked again this week, are the promises in Zechariah, are they to ethnic Israel, are they to the land, are they to the people, and the answer is yes and yes. A great thing is going to happen to ethnic Israel. A great thing has already happened to ethnic Israel. I don't know if you were aware of this. April 18th, 2018, Israel celebrated its 70th birthday. 
19, before 1948, Israel was not recognized as a nation after Rome had completely destroyed it in 8070. So about 19 centuries had come and gone. And all of a sudden, in 1948, in our lifetime, unbelievable, the United Nations recognizes Israel as a nation. That was a showstopper. Nobody expected that. And then in 1967, it looked like that they might be wiped off uh, the face of the earth. Egypt's coming at them, and uh, there's forces coming at them from, uh, from, f- f- from the north. And 1967 is referred to, as you probably know, as the Six Days War. And Egypt, Egypt dro- I mean, Israel drove Egypt out of the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula. They took that back, and they... They drove their enemies out of the Golan Heights of Syria, and they retook the West Bank, uh, the Arab sector that Jordan had taken hold of. And by the time the United Nations, which obviously is since 1948, it's it's many times made a, a, a poor choice for Israel, but by the time the United Nations ceasefire took effect on June 11th, Israel had doubled its size in six days. So there are already blessings to ethnic Israel. From 1938 to 1945, Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany destroyed, killed one-third of all the Jews that were alive in the world. Today, half of all the Jews that are alive in the world have already moved back to Palestine. Today, Israel remains a technological powerhouse. It's the most important source of high-tech innovation outside of Silicon Valley, one of the strongest militaries and one of the strongest economies in the world. So yes, I do believe that there are plenty of blessings to ethnic Israel because I think we've already seen them. But none of those blessings compare to what's happening in Romans 11, where the Scripture says that all of Israel will come to Jesus Christ and be saved. That for all these years, even if you were to ask the Jews today, do you give glory to God for becoming a nation? In 1948, they'll tell you no. Well, Do you give glory to God for Winning the Six Days War, the Jews will say no. They said we did it by our power. They're still not worshiping God. But Romans 11 says they will. That they'll come to faith in Christ. And so all the verses that I put below there are verses that show that you and I are going to be one, unified, complete with Israel as we place our faith in Christ too. So just as Israel will one day receive, ethnic Israel will receive great blessings in the land, we too, as Jesus Christ believing Gentiles that are grafted into God's overall plan, we too will enjoy romping and stomping all over the beautiful renewed land of the Middle East, especially Palestine. So why do I tell you all that? Because I want you as believers in Christ with Israel to understand you must. The the Old Testament will mean nothing to you if you cannot read 
every fear not in the Old Testament and say it applies to me as well. If all of the fear nots of the Old Testament in Psalms and in the prophets only, only apply to Israel, then pity us that we would have ever started a study of the minor prophets. But through faith in Jesus Christ, Israel has a great inheritance, and so do the Gentiles, you and me, who were not born Jewish. Let me close with one of the great fear nots in the book of Zechariah 8, 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west, and I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now hear these words, and let your hand be strong so that the temple may be built. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. As you leave this property of Oak Brook, and as you move over to Asheville Highway, let your hands be strong. Fear not. As you go and meet with your doctor today, post-surgery, pre-surgery, pre-report, post-report, fear not. God has remembered every one of the details that he wants to accomplish in your life before you walk into the city of God. Fear not. You're going off to college, all sorts of new experiences, all sorts of new challenges. God is with you on that athletic field. He's with you in that laboratory. He's with you as you're studying He's with you when you're overwhelmed. Fear not, but above all else, let your hands be strong. God is on your side. God is with you as much as he was with Moses and Joshua and Daniel. The fear nots that they received or the fear nots he wants you to receive, let your hands be strong and Finish what he's called you to do. Fear not. Give him in a moment in song your strong hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the many times in life where you have strengthened our hands. They were weak, they were trembling. We could hardly grab a Bible verse, but you got us through those horrendous days. We could hardly use our hands to lift a prayer from our, our heart to your throne, but you helped us to pray. You sent us a friend to hold our hand. You sent us a caregiver to put a little bit of money in our hand. You put a fork in our hand so that we had something to eat. You put a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon so that we could be healed. You caused our hands to fill out a job application so that we were employed again. You caused our hand to be able to grasp a steering wheel and drive our car to your answer. You'd prepared. When we couldn't hold on to you, you held on to us, 
When we forgot you, you remembered us. So today, Lord, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, you're gathering the Jews to yourself through faith in the only Messiah, Christ. That work has just begun, but Lord, it will explode. We want to be a part of it by praying for them. You would open their eyes even today. We want them to come to Christ. We want to go to Palestine and watch them worship Jesus. We want to see their sins forgiven, and we want our sins to be forgiven as we too embrace Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, the forgiver of our guilt. Comfort those who've had great loss this week in this city. Redeem that pain. Don't let the sorrow be wasted. Bring them, bring those who are alive to Christ. And remind us all, the word of God is the only thing that will stand forever. And those who cling to it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.